So I want to welcome everyone. It's nice to see you all. Uh, as I was mentioning, uh, as we broke the sitting, uh, that uh, we're really involved in an evolution of consciousness. This isn't, uh, it's not a feel-good uh, meeting. It's not a meeting where we come and, uh, you know, go away uh, uplifted. Hopefully that happens, but that's not the point of the meeting. The point of the meeting is uh, to have a sense intellectually that something could be happening here without the resolution of that sense of working ourselves into that evolutionary process. And that takes work. It, it's not a passive, it's not a passive life. Dharma life is not a passive life. Uh, although much of our Dharma practice seems passive in the sense that we sit and develop the stability and tranquility and calmness of mind so that we can penetrate some of the layers of self-delusion. The activity that we then move out and address our lives with is the essential element in transforming those insights into a working evolutionary response uh, so that we can actually live the reality rather than know the reality in some kind of abstract way. That takes a resolve, and that's what the last two talks have been about. It's a resolution of the heart. It's saying, you know, is your life working so well that you can put this on a back burner? Is everything so settled in your life that you can put your feet up and just kind of rest through the rest of it? Is this a call for us to act upon what we know to be true? And many of us um, love to get sort of saturated at the intellectual level because it's intellectually satisfying. It resonates deeply with the cells of our body, so there's a sense that what we're hearing is true. And for some of us, that's good enough just to hear it and know that truth is out there somewhere. But truth being out there somewhere, it doesn't change your life, may make you more opinionated about the life you are living, more disgruntled within it, but it really doesn't change much. As a friend of mine, Narayan, often says, where's the liberation? When the hon horn honks at you, when the irritations mount in the course of the day, where's the liberation? Are we acting from the truth of what we know, are we letting it just kind of pile up as an intellectual conocopria of our knowledge base so that we can talk well about it and we can argue from it, but nothing really changes in our life. And it's in those sudden moments during the course of the day when we come into this room and it's colder than we had expected and our feet are cold or and we're in that disgruntled mood or when we're sitting next to somebody who's shuffling around next to us, and that wasn't our anticipation of having a quiet evening with just me. Where's the liberation? Where's the resolve? Because it happens through resolve. First we have to understand the general umbrella of the Dharma. The general umbrella, the way the Dharma leads us is towards interconnectedness. But then we have to have the intention from that view of interconnectedness, the intention to work our lives towards being more connected. And many of us, like, I mean, because we are intellectual creatures in this culture, we have that strength of mind, of the intellect, we win Nobel Prizes very easily, don't we? But we're not a very wise society. Because we don't live the truth. And we, are, we become intellectually satisfied in that sense of satisfaction at the understanding, at the, at the abstract understanding level, sets us up. It's, all, it's where we, are, we, we like to rest there. We're afraid to go any further, really, if we looked at it. If we pushed ourselves beyond the intellect, we're not sure what's there. We're comfortable within the intellect. We're comfortable there. We can we can take we can put our our feet up on the coffee table of the intellect. 
But this is an intellect. We're not doing that here. How well we can say it has nothing at all to do with the point. It misses the point entirely. What happens when your husband gets ill? Or you get ill? Where is the liberation? I want to crack a little whip, as you can hear in my voice, tone, because I feel us being too passive, and it's my job to keep us to the point here, to the point. And how we use the homework, oh, I don't know. Hanging on my refrigerator and never go back to it. But if we see, if we saw sufficiently the need to put this piled up intellectual wisdom into action so that we start working the cells of our body, would we think we just live up here? You think this is where we are in the top three inches of our skull? You think that is the home of us? The home of us is the entire organism. Every cell that is in this organism, every cell needs to be transformed. And what gets transformed with you just listening and holding at an intellectual level is nothing because that part of the body doesn't touch the rest of it. It's action that does that. It's movement. It's putting this thing into into movement. It's called wise action. And that resolution, that resolution of heart, when it realizes that the life is adrift, our lives are adrift, that they're not moving in accordance to a deeply sincere knowing within us, and I don't mean an intellectual knowing, I mean a heart knowing, a, a yearning of the heart that knows that we're living all skewed up here. And that unless we turn this thing around, nothing's going to change. Nothing. And to have the courage to take that risk, to step into that and say, okay, this is important to me. And to live one's importance, to live it. I don't know how many years some of us have been coming, but how has your life changed? Are you still grumbling in the same way around the same events throughout the day? How has it changed? And as I mentioned, there can be wise resolve or unwise resolve. Unwise resolve is just trying to force that change through discipline. Not through seeing, but through discipline. I'm one, I should be, I need to be, I have to be, I must be. That kind of uh, mental uh, abrasion of one part of the mind trying to transform the other part that's recalcitrant and try to whip it into shape. At the beginning it works fine, but very quickly the seeing, S-E-E-I-N-G, seeing takes over. As we this whole thing is about actually seeing what's in front of our eyes, seeing the problem. And as the Buddhist frame of that problem is that they're suffering here. And that we need to show up and be accountable for that suffering, to take responsibility, to see that it's being generated by me over and over again. And to take responsibility for that. Not to blame it, not to shunt it off to some other political power. Wrong administration of this or that, complaining mode. But to take responsibility for it, okay. So what is it that's creating this suffering in front of me? And once we see it, then not to keep backsliding onto the same patterns we've seen, but to go forward. That requires a resolution of heart. The resolution is once we see, once we see it, that's it. The game is over. How many times do we have to see it? 
once is enough for the truth to be known. And then start living that truth, to put that into action. Start moving energetically out. I don't know if I've ever told this story, I probably have, but I went to Nisargadatta Maharaj back in 1980 as a monk, and he fed my vanity by having me come right up in front of him, and I was there for, for many days, and he would have me come right up in front of him each day, and then he would dialogue with me, and there was a group about half this size in a very small little packed room, and I felt very honored that he was, you know, very noble and all that, as I was arguing my Buddhism. And then one day he said, I'd like, I went and sat down right in front of him as well as his head, and he said, what are you doing sitting there? And I said, I thought we were going to dialogue. He said, no, if you had anything wise to say, we'd dialogue, but all I've been hearing from you is crap. <laughs> I said, he says, now you can sit there in your costume, because I was a monk, or you can come over here and meet me in this thing. But I don't want to hear any more intellectualization of the problem. You give me the solution now. Show up for it. And of course, I didn't know what he meant, so I slithered to the back of the room. but I do now. And that's why I'm calling us all accountable. Because our lives are fastly slipping away, rapidly. And some of us had a good time together, right? We've had a good time together. There's nothing wrong with having a good time but it's not about having a good time. Good times happen as a byproduct of the diligent work that's necessary to meet our responsibility in life. And we only have one responsibility to life, and that's to show up to it. It's the only responsibility we have to life, to show up for it, to put our heart on the line because this is an entirely a heart game. And to expose that heart. Because two things are needed. One is the resolution to hold our place on this earth with some degree of conviction and accountability. And not to constantly waver in our excuses and our apologies for being on this earth, which many of us do over and over again because we haven't resolved the basic inward tension that we have a right to exist. And that has to be solved. That has to be so that you have, there's no movement in relationship to one's mind or body on the face of this earth. No more excuses about why I live here. And the other th requirement for resolution of spirit is the willingness to expose every part of yourself, to deny nothing, to be completely honest. The honesty that comes from the resolution and firmness of our place here on earth. And not to be satisfied by the intellectual satisfaction that Dharma gives us. Because the rest of us, the other 95% of our body is in lethargy. And I can feel it. Your mind may be crisp, but the rest of you is limp. And that's not good enough. It's 
not good enough because it won't stop aging, won't stop disease, won't stop impermanence. And there comes a moment in one's life that is a crisis, a spiritual crisis. And if you haven't found it yet, it's because you haven't awakened sufficiently. In which you realize what you have to do to move this thing forward, and you don't know that you want to go there. You don't know you want to move it in that direction. It seems to be asking too much of you. And that's the crisis. And the resolution it's as if there's a wanting to want but not a wanting. It's on retreat, I see it a lot. You know, people come to retreat. They've cleared out that particular days on their calendar so that there's nothing uh, critical that they have to do. No responsibilities. They've tied up the loose ends. They come to retreat. They show up for the retreat. And then the first two or three days, because the first two or three days, represents their life, which is that their minds are churning through their life. It's a mind-driven life. And when they come out of a mind-driven life into the retreat, the first few days of a retreat is a mind-generated life. And there's irresolution. It's like, oh, should I leave? God, this is hard. It's not comfortable. My back hurts. It's in you. And it's a feeling of, oh, you know, do I really want to show up? I was nicer at home. Wasn't it? You love that. It's nicer at home. It's nicer when I allow myself the free expression of my mind. Self-stimulated thoughts. I can stimulate myself through my thinking. Yes, that's 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 where it's at. What can't you picture in your mind? You can go anywhere you want. You can do anything you want. You can be anything you want in your mind. You can relive anything that you, has happened to you, and you can even change the memory so that it suits you better. You can invest that view into the world so that the world starts looking the way you want it to look. And it's exactly what we're doing now if you see two of something. You've, you're doing it. You've chosen that that's the view you want the world to shape itself into. And by God, there it is, isn't it? Hi, Alice, Jim. <laughs> Big, small, miserable, noble, arrogant, humble. <laughs> we can do anything we want in that. You can be anything you want to be. Go anywhere you want to go. Who would want to give up that power? For what? Presence? Give me a break. What's that give me? Why would I want to go there? If you haven't asked yourself that question, why haven't you? You're not going to fool yourself into this. You have to confront the very obstacles that keep you from moving forward. And this is a big one. It's like, why would I want to give this up? The beginning class, they're honest about it. Why should I stop thinking, Rodney? Who the hell are you? <laughs> we think we're too sophisticated. Of course you don't want to think. You want to feel your breath, right? Why don't you want to think? How do we think we can go forward here? You're not going to try to talk yourself. You can't talk yourself into this. Now you go forward. 
See, it requires more of us. It requires seeing. When we look at the world we've created from the perceptions we seek and invest, and we see the hell that befalls all of us from each of us holding those perceptions. And you don't have to go back very far to look at the devastation. And you look at your own life and you see, yes, you can go out into the abstract world of thinking and take yourself hither and thither, but you also come back to the hell of your own creation the hell of your own separation, the hell of your own internal pain and suffering. And we try to resolve the hell of our own pain and suffering like we would an operation. Let's just take that part out and still have our separation. Let's just ask the surgeon, called the psychologist, just to take that part out. You know, it's like a sore. It's like a malignancy. Cut it out, and then let me keep my separation, let my mind go. But the fact of separation is the hell. Do you see the resolve? I'm not yelling at you. <laughs> I'm being passionate about this. I'm trying to just stir you a little bit. To get us over our inertia so that we'll take this thing as seriously as it's intended to be taken. I did this whole interview on the radio a few days ago. Dharma geeks. <laughs> so it'll show up there on your Dharma geek if you're... So the whole pro... He, he wanted to know you're an urban Dharma teacher. What does that mean? I said, well, it means that every part of your life is equally as important as every other. You mean you don't believe in retreats? I said, yeah, I believe in retreats. I just don't believe in retreats as being disproportionately spiritual as opposed to the rest of you. And he says, wow. He says, you have to show up in the same way? Absolutely. He says, not, we're not running a hundred yard dash. This is a marathon of 70 years, or however long you'll live. And the energy it takes to sustain one's commitment and resolution. That's what Sangha, that's why we meet, to sustain our resolution. Not to get comatose, or apathetic. And you've heard all this before. Why come back? Because I'm trying, we're trying together to sustain our energy towards this uphill battle against the conditioning of our history. And to see, to see through that condition. And we need each other to do that. And those of you who come and just don't like to talk and get up and leave, please don't come back. Because I don't want that kind of energy in the room. It brings us all down when one person leaves, doesn't it? And we need each other for this. We need each other in ways that you can't possibly understand until you see interconnectedly. We desperately need each other. And so we look, we see what it is. Why is it that I'm so irresolved in my resolution? Why is it that I just can't? What's missing? 
What am I afraid of? Asking the questions that allow us to at least discern where it is that we are backing away from this. Asking the hard questions so that we can willingness to face that. That doesn't need anything but your honesty. We've gone through this before. So honesty moves easily into resolve. Because when we're honest, we're willing to look. When we look and we see the problem, then we say, that's it. You see, the reason we need to hold our place on the earth is that for some of us, when we see this is it, we say, well, maybe I'm wrong. Or maybe I'm, I'm not sure this is it. Maybe I need somebody else to verify this is it. Or I should ask the teacher whether this is it. We don't have time for that. We can't, don't have time to turn around and question your place on the earth. You see, this is it, this is it. Then you move forward into that. But because there's such a deep underlying sense of self-tragedy and inadequacy in most of us, we question the very understanding, the very wisdom, the very seeing that we have. We don't allow ourselves to firm our presence around the scene. It reinforces a kind of doubt in us, like, am I really up to this, or can I really do this? Gosh, I feel like such a mistake all the time. How can I possibly show up when I have this complete waffling of character? So we turn to that, okay? You see, there, there's never anything disadvantaged here. Nothing ever works against us, because all we ever have to do is turn in the direction of what the disadvantagedness is. If we're willing to look at it, and that's the honesty, let's look at this doubt, bring it out there. It may prove that I'm as worthy as I believe. It may prove that. And say, my God, I am as bad as I thought. Well, there we are. That's it. Now I can go home. I haven't lost anyone from that yet. Not one. So if you think that that's what you're going to discover, that's what you're going to have to risk. It's this discovery of that. You may be the special person that, in fact, verifies the truth of your own inadequacy. Or, much more likely, <laughs> is that what you see is that it's being driven by the pain of your history. And when we look at it, it isn't substantiated. That from the present moment, from presence, it doesn't hold any self-definition. And so when we look at something, our willingness to see dissolves the barrier that kept us moving forward. So now we can move forward. Now we no longer, we don't want to, well maybe I, I'm not sure whether my, you know, you don't want to go back to doubt in what you just saw. You move, I see this doubt, now let me move forward. But what about, the, because there are pockets, of, you don't keep looking around, you just, that's it. I'm not listening anymore to all that nonsense. Now, anything else want to come out of the closet? Because I'm going to grab you. Come on. You just leave the closet open. You just step in, the, and then any other voices back there, you're on them like with a flashlight. Boom! What'd you say? Come on over right here. <laughs> you see? It's like, oh, I'm so, what if I, no, we show up for ourselves. Now listen, everyone in the room has that potentiality. Every single one of you. In fact, if you've asserted the discipline to sit for 40 minutes watching your breath or whatever is the predominant experience or however you're meditating, you have all the strength you need to do all of this. 
It's just that when you come out of the meditative trance, you're back in the wobbly boat of yourself. And that just gets pushed around with the waves. And to expose everything is the second of that. To stand your ground and just, that's it. Not anything. Come on. Anything. And you're like a cat in a mouse hole. Because it becomes intolerable to live from the suffering of our past. Intolerable to keep reinforcing the tragedies of our past, which keep building a stronger and stronger sense of those tragedies through the present into the future. It becomes intolerable to walk life in that direction when you know that you don't have to. And every one of you knows that you don't have to. It says, that sense of mind and its busyness and the, all the things I have to do and all the expressions of intellect and all the thinking and all of the self-stimulation that thoughts provide and all the opinions it forms and the righteousness I can have. I, I just want to, I want to read something that I read in the news. It says, in a new study, Social, social science researchers have found that people employ motivated reasoning to fend off any evidence that their strongly held beliefs are wrong. Many people feel that they are their opinions and hate to lose arguments. So, when confronted with new troubling information, ideologues selectively interpret the facts or use contorted logic to make the conflicting evidence just go away. <laughs> In the study, even when presented with compelling factual data from a trusted source, most subjects still found ways to dismiss it. In fact, researchers found that exposing people to contradictory information actually intensified their existing beliefs and opinions. <laughs> making them more rigid and entrenched. <laughs> so see, I come, I'll come at you, like I'm doing energetically tonight. And you can go one or two ways. You can meet my energy and say, well, what's going on? You know, let me look. Or you can trail off and say, he attacked me, or he, which I get a lot of notes to that effect. He told me not to, he told me my opinions worked, or all my righteousness, all of my political righteousness, or my animal righteousness, or my people righteousness. I'm not going to eat meat. I don't care what he said. We can't, we're so fixed around our opinions and our attitudes and our righteousness. We're so unwilling to give that up. We're so unwilling to move into a world that we aren't determining everything. We're so afraid of the possibilities of what a world would look like to us, the risks that would be out there if we weren't pre-positioning everything in a determined way through our opinions, through our mind's fixation. And that's why, after three days, or a number of times, during a residential retreat, the mind starts to soften. It starts to let go of its opinions. It starts to release the tension of its life. 
It screamed for three days about the terrible world it's having to live in called a retreat. And finally, it acquiesces to the retreat. The heart becomes the organ of choice. And it starts developing a whole different vision of life from that organ. And suddenly you think, God, I'm just getting going here. I could do this for months. This is just, it's many people say, oh, this, I felt like I was just getting going. Because the heart was finally exposed. But more importantly, we don't realize with what tension we hold the mind. For it takes three days to unwind that <coughs> ball of yarn. And it's not as if we're suddenly seeing oneness. It's just that when the heart comes out, energetically you move in that direction. You may not perceive it because the mind doesn't reconfigure the world any differently. It's just that the heart takes over and energetically you just start moving in relationship to oneness. And then energetic, because the cells know. And when the cells start moving in harmony, they, they don't have to be told not to steal or kill. They just move. That's the way it looks. That's the way the heart responds to life. And so well, I haven't had visions of oneness. When every cell in your body is moving in accordance to that harmony, don't worry about whether you've seen it or not. That will come in its own time. People say, well, I don't understand Ananta. Just live it. Just live it. See, that's what Nisargadatta was saying. Just live the reality of it. It feels so much better. In fact, it feels so good that most people go back on a retreat to regain those very brief days so they can feel them again rather than living that way all the time. This is where the resolution of life comes in. Where you say, okay, you know what? Enough. I can either make it work here, or it's just not working for me. And I like to call myself out like that. I like to bring it, you know, just, okay, you know what? Where is it? No more pretension here. I'm not going to just be starry-eyed, naive, and just you know, new age speak, everything's one, I don't have any problems, everything's one. No, I've got, this is, this is, I see it or I don't. Then, why, unwise result, the disciplined, bare knuckle approach to living, that cantankerous, one part of the mind trying to control the other part, that internal fighting and squabbling because why would we discipline except one part of the mind doesn't want it to do what this part of the mind wants it to do. Suddenly everything is folded into a whole, the whole of relaxation. Into the whole, into a whole where nothing is made from any of the individual parts, the speaking parts. No more contention I turn my life over to it. I turn my life over to the whole. Not to the rigors of discipline. No longer. It worked for a while. I'm not trying to take you off of that if it's still working for you. But if it's creating the tension and the struggle of your spiritual practice, it's time to reconsider if there's another way to do this thing. To take yourself off of that hot plate. Let's go a different direction here. If I'm, the means I'm using isn't serving the ends I seek, if I can't struggle and force myself into wholeness, maybe I should hold myself into wholeness. And how do I do that? But to connect with things and relax with that connection. Like a soldering iron. You bring the things together, and then the relaxation forms the bond. First I have to meet it, which is the resolution, okay? Regardless of where, what this thing is in me, 
this emotion, this story, whatever it is. Let me just meet it head on and look at it with a discerning eye. And if it falls apart from that discernment, so be it, which almost everything does. Except presence. That's what meets it. That's what stays when everything else dissolves. Aliveness. To know ourselves from our aliveness. And to encourage that aliveness. Because once it's tasted, get very hungry when you're not in the middle of it. And at that point, there's no more whining about how mistake-ridden I am and all of that. No, all of that has been seen through now. We walk through the issues and then that's it. And the sense of resolve builds upon itself, reinforcing its own momentum into a kind of certainty, but it's not a certainty of the intellect. It's a certainty of presence. It's an absolute certainty of where and what this moment is. Without any equivocation. And one's relationship to the moment dissolves within the moment. One doesn't then need opinions to solidify their power or their righteousness to contrast themselves against other people or with other people. Because that's not the journey of the heart. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or a yogi or a Sikh. This is the journey of the heart. This is the journey of vastness. Of not in no not individuation. And we see that the universe meets us proportional to our resolve to show up. And that as long as we were hedging and pulling back, it never met us. So how could there ever be this corridor of certainty when we were always pulling back in fear of it? But when there is a resolution to show up, and we show up with a thunderous clap, it's met.
that's why this can't be uprooted. When you see it, we have millions and millions, billions of people out there who are not seeing it. So we better see it because they're going to be trying to uproot our seeing. And if we're at all fragile in what we have seen or we have strong self-doubt about what we see, then we're going to be uprooted very quickly. And that's why 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.